The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. We welcome you to today's topic on other non-immigrant visa options that you may want to consider for your employees. Joining me on today's conference are two of my esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Attorney Kenya Sanders and Attorney TJ, or Timothy Sachet, also known as TJ. Both of them are very experienced attorneys in the non-immigrant visa department at the Murthy Law Firm. And so today our goal is to cover a wide variety of options for individuals to obtain work authorization in the U.S. And we're not going to talk about H-1B or L-1 or F-1OPT because we've talked about those in different multi-teleconference sessions. So we're going to cover a whole range of other non-immigrant visa categories, what we joke about and sometimes describe as the proverbial alphabet soup of U.S. immigration law in the non-immigrant category. Uh, as we've said before, we will go a mile wide and an inch deep. We certainly hope that the, this will help you all, whether you're employers or employees who are listening to this teleconference, to understand some of the other options for you all in the non-immigrant visa category because presumably all of you who had to be selected in the H-1B lottery have been selected and those who have been left out need to see if they may be eligible in another category. So with that, I'm going to invite you, Kenya, to speak next about certain other categories that enjoy certain benefits for certain countries. So would you like to touch upon that, Kenya? Absolutely, Sheila. Okay. So um, I'm going to kind of introduce you to categories that are reserved for certain nationalities. These are called the treaty-based non-immigrant visa classification, which we will discuss in today's session. Now, eligibility for these classifications are limited to citizens of specific countries that have bilateral treaties with the U.S. These include Canada, Mexico, Australia, and several others. What to remember with this one, this is not restricted to applicants' country of birth, but it's restricted to applicants' country of citizenship. So therefore, if an Indian-born individual later obtains citizenship in one of these countries, then they would be eligible for the visa classification uh, if that country has a treaty with the U.S. Fabulous. Thank you, Kenya, for that quick update. So I'm going to invite TJ to talk a little bit about the trade NAFTA or TN, now under called the USMCA agreement, uh, TN, because I know that's what you do. You've probably done hundreds, if not thousands, of these cases, TJ. So take it away. Sure, sure. So um, this is the, the TN category is for citizens of Mexico. Um, or Canada, and it's based off of the, the, the recent U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. 
It's otherwise known as the USMCA, and it is the, the successor to, to NAFTA. And nothing has changed under the USMCA um, from NAFTA. So if you've done those before the USMCA, um, it's, it's still the same. Um, it's, it's generally available for those who will be working in the U.S. in professional positions that are specified in the USCIS, USCIS regulations. There's a whole bunch of, of different categories. Um, a couple of notable ones include accountants, uh, doctors, but doctors are only for teaching or research, not uh, you know, your, your general you know, practitioner, um, registered nurses, uh, pharmacists, a, a, a bunch of different scientists, university professors, hotel managers, computer systems analysts, lawyers, and engineers, which also includes software engineers. I can tell you in my experience that you will see a, a bit more scrutiny if you have an IT position and file it as a computer systems analyst. Sometimes we try and categorize those under the software engineering category. Um, for the vast majority of these TN positions, a college degree is absolutely required. Experience alone or, you know, a combination of education and experience is not going to work like it, like it may work in the, the H-1B context. Um, one notable exception is for a management consultant um, where a person can qualify based on a degree or five years of, of relevant experience. But like I said, with the computer systems analyst occupational classification, this is one that, that USCS or, or you know, the consular officer or the officer of the port of entry may scrutinize a, a bit more. The position must be temporary. It can't be used to fill an existing opening or replacing someone in an existing position or filling a newly created position. And in, in order to file, in order to get TN status, there are a couple ways to do it. One is you can file a, a form I-129 with USCIS if the individual is in the United States. So you can file a change of status from H-1B to TN, from F-1 to TN, something like that. Um, and then for Canadian citizens, if they don't want to file within the United States, what they can do is they can just go to the port of entry, take a letter from their employ employer describing the position as, as, and, and some background documentation, and apply for entry in the United States. And if it's it's approved, they'd get an I-94 card um, annotated for TN. Um, and then Mexican citizens, however, must apply for the visa. Um, they must go to the consulate abroad and apply for the TN visa and then use that to enter the United States. These are generally sometimes quicker ways to get into TN status than if you file with USCIS. You can just hop, you know, hop over the border, uh, present your documents at the port of entry if you're Canadian, and come right back in, and that can be done fairly quickly. Um, with COVID, things have slowed down a little bit, but that's still a generally fairly quick way to, to get into TN status. Um, but it's, it's important to know. Yeah, and no. the, Sorry, go ahead, Jill. Yeah, and an inter the interesting thing was apparently just today or this week, the uh, U.S.-Canada border may actually be reopening or have reopened because we've seen the sudden uh, reduction and good news with COVID-19. Unlike most of the rest of the world, the U.S. is still shut down and I know the borders were closed, but what I heard just earlier, uh, just this week, was that the borders have actually opened between the U.S. and Canada. So let's hope that's all true and people are able right. to now start coming in and out on the right, TN. Right. Sorry, TJ, please right. go no, ahead. Sure. That, that, that would definitely be great news and would help a lot of people, not just Canadian and, and U.S. citizens. Um, mm -hmm. And then one thing, to, important thing to note that self-employment is not permitted in TN, but you can be sponsored by a Canadian company to come into the United States to perform work for a U.S. company. So you're not an employee of the U.S. 
company, but more of a, an independent contractor. And we've done a few of these types of cases. Um, and in this situation, the sponsored worker could actually be an owner of the foreign company. So it's kind of self-employment in a sense. Um, and then TN is typically granted in three-year increments and may be extended indefinitely. So unlike H-1B, where you're, you're, you know, you're set at six years, absent some exceptions, you could come in on TN indefinitely. Um, and then your dependents can come in in TD status. But Wonderful. they don't get work authorization. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. Thank you so much, DJ. Mm -hmm. uh, so now that we've touched upon the different countries, we started with Canada, the T and Mexico TN. Next, we're going to jump to the E1 and E2 treaty trader, treaty investor options. Um, so the E1 treaty trader and the E2 treaty investor categories are available to foreign nationals whose country of citizenship has a bilateral treaty of friendship and commerce with the United States. Citizens of such countries can come to the U.S. either to carry on a substantial international trade that is mainly between the U.S. and the treaty country or to develop and direct the operations of a U.S. company. Unlike the E1, the E2 treaty investor category requires that the individual or the company have made a substantial investment in the U.S. enterprise. The E1 and E2 categories can also be used for those who are coming to work in some like, like supervisory category, an executive or essential skills position for a qualifying employer. These classifications really work well for large established companies, but we've often seen at the multi law firm and used it by entrepreneurs looking to build their own startup in the United States. Um, so E1 and E2 visas, as you know, are not available for all foreign nationals because, again, you need that Treaty of Friendship, Trade, and Commerce. The law requires that there's that specific treaty between that country and the U.S. So only those who are citizens of a country that has signed this qualifying treaty will be eligible for the E1, E2 visas. The list of countries is actually very long and ranges, like I've said, from Japan to Australia, many countries in the European Union, and to some obvious, you know, less obvious countries like Pakistan, uh, most of the countries listed have treaties that cover both the E1 and E2 categories, but some of the countries only cover one or the other category. Uh, Iran was actually on the list, but was removed January of 2020, over a year, almost a year and a half ago. So with that, I'm going to jump and request Kenya to talk about some of the other issues with respect to E1 and E2 treaty traders and treaty investors. Right. Thank you, Sheila. So I am going to just introduce the E1 category, which is reserved for treaty traders who are engaged in substantial trade between the treaty country and the United States. Now, substantial is not defined in the regulations, but there are some guidelines USCIS provided. It is based on um, an amount of trade sufficient to ensure a continuous flow of international trade between the U.S. and the treaty country, which means that it cannot be just one single transaction. It has to be a continuous flow of trade, so there has to be trade back and forth between the U.S. and the treaty country. Um, so they focus on the volume of exchange is, is the primary focus, 
but you can also look at the monetary value. So if it's volume, you know, and high monetary value, then, you know, there's a greater chance of that case being approved. Another thing to also remember is that more than half of the trade between the treat that the um, company conducts, you know, from the treaty country, more than half has to be with the U.S. So they can, you know, trade with other countries, but the the majority of the trade has to be with the U.S. Now. The, the visa applicant can be the investor who, um, I mean, the, you know, the, the owner of the company, you know, who is doing the trade or the individual who's doing the trade, or it can be an employee of a company that is engaged in, in the trade. So you can come, you know, as if an employee, the person can come as a key employee of the company, such as an executive or a supervisor, or a person with essential skills that is needed by the company to conduct its business. Wonderful. Thank you, Kenya. So let's have you, TJ, touch brief, uh, explain a little bit more about the E2 Treaty Investor category. Sure. So thanks, Shelley. So the, the E2 category is reserved for treaty investors. And to, to qualify, the, the individual must make a substantial investment in a, U, in a U.S. business. And, you know, like the E1 category, substantial is not defined. Um, but there is some guidance that, that has been provided. So it must be substantial in a proportional sense. In other words, substantial in the in relationship to the total cost of either purchasing an established enterprise or creating the type of enterprise under consideration. So one way I sometimes like to look at this is, you know, if you're if you're establishing just you know a, a new software development company, right? That can be you know $100,000 may be substantial. That's you know a lot of money. You don't need to buy all the the equipment and all that stuff. $100,000 may be really good to get that up and running and. But then if you're going to invest in, like, let's say, Coca-Cola, and you invest $100,000, that's probably not going to be considered substantial. Um, so that's one way that I like to look at it. And in addition to this, it, it also needs to be sufficient to ensure that the, invest, that the investor's financial commitment to, to ensure the investor's financial commitment to the operation. So if you're given 10 bucks, it's not going to be sufficient because you don't really care if the, the investment fails, right? And then it's got to be, you know, the investment has to be of a magnitude to support the likelihood that the treaty investor will successfully develop and direct the enterprise. And, you know, also similar to the E1, the person applying for the E2 can be the actual investor coming to develop and direct the operations, or it can be, you know, the executive, supervisor, or essential skilled employee of the company that has invested in a U.S. business. And for for both the E1 and the E2, the company sponsoring the, the worker must be at least 50% owned, 50 owned by nationals of the treaty company. So if you're country, I'm sorry. So if you're coming, you know, for, you know, let's, let's say, you know, Australia has a treaty, you know, with the United States for E2, they would need to be at least 50% owned by Australian nationals. Um, and the foreign national applicant, the one that is applying for the visa, must be a citizen of that treaty country. So you can't have an, an Australian company with an Indian citizen who does not have Australian citizenship and then apply for the E2 that way. It just wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. 
And it's, it's important to note, and I think one of many of our listeners would be, like to know, that e- India does not have a, a qualifying treaty with the U.S. Um, it would be great if that happened one day, but as of now, they don't. Um, and then just in terms of you know, procedural things, or E1s and E2s are typically issued for up to five years, and they'll generally, you'll generally be admitted for two years at a time. So you get the E2 visa, and then you come in, you're given two years. Then you're going to leave or file an extension and come back in for two years. You can actually get this to extend past five years, though, because if you come back in, let's say the visa is valid for five years, you come back in three days before it expires, you presumably should get a 994 card valid for an additional two years. So you've got close to seven years on that first visa application, which can be very beneficial because administrations change, things change, businesses change. So that can be very beneficial. Um, and there's no maximum number of times that the E1 or E2 visa status may be extended, and, you know, kind of like TN. And unlike H1B where there's a time limit, you can just go on E1 or E2 indefinitely. Um, but one thing to, to keep in mind is that the, you know, the E1 and the E2 must show non-immigrant intent. In other words, they, they must show the intent to return to their home country upon the conclusion of their E2, E1 status. Um, so that's something to keep in mind if you're you know, trying for the, the labor certification and eventually getting your green card. Timing needs to be worked out there. You don't want to apply for the visa when you've also got a green card case going. could hurt the case. Um, and then the spouse or children of the E1 or E2 may be admitted as E1 or E2 dependents. Um, they do not, good thing, they do not have to be nationals of the treaty country. They just need to be the spouse or, or child of the national of the treaty country. And they are also, unlike the TNs, they're, they're eligible to apply for employment authorization. So that's only one benefit of, of you know, the E1 or E2 dependents. Thank you so much, TJ. Yeah, and, and, and as TJ just briefly mentioned, you know, unfortunately, at this time, some of the largest countries in the world lack both the E1 and E2 qualifying treaties, including China, mainland China, India, and many other countries. So their citizens can take advantage of E1 or E2. And next, we're going to talk about E3. Um, now, this is available for citizens of Australia who are coming to the United States to perform services in a specialty occupation. And for those of you who say, huh, specialty occupation sounds like H-1B, guess what? It is exactly identical to the H-1B classification uh, in that it requires the theoretical and practical application of specialized knowledge and attainment of a bachelor's degree in a specific specialty or higher for entry into the occupation. So in that sense, as I said, it's very, very similar, if not identical, to the process for H-1B. You need to file, complete the labor condition application, or LCA, which is filed with the U.S. Department of Labor. However, similar to some of the other categories we've talked about, I think TN, for example, for Canadian citizens, if the Australian citizen is born outside of the United, uh, is, born, is, is located, rather, outside of the United States, then that person is not required to file the I-129 with the USCIS, but can simply use the labor condition application certified by the Department of Labor and apply directly at the U.S. consulate in Australia and one of the consulates and enter on the E-3 visa. If the applicant does not have the equivalent of a bachelor's degree for higher education, you can actually combine education and experience. And while that's also possible for others 
on H-1B. We have seen some pushback sometimes, especially during the prior administration of not loving the combination of education and experience. Uh, similar to the quota like the Singapore and Chile uh, H-1B1s that are limited at 6,500 total, this has a 10,500 visas set aside for E3 Australians each fiscal year. And to remind some of you who may not remember, it starts on October 1st each year, and the fiscal year for USCIS expires on September 30th. And as far as we know, this number has never been used up fully for E3s for Australians. Dependents are granted what's called the E3D status, and similar to what TJ just explained, spouses can apply for work authorization because, again, it's part of the E category, which enjoys the spouse enjoying the privilege of employment authorization. And uh, E3s are approved for two years at a time and can be renewed indefinitely. So that's regarding Australians. Next, let's jump to the P classification for artists, athletes, and entertainers. So let me invite Kenya then to get started with the P1 classification. Kenya? Hi, Sheila. Okay. So the P1 classification is reserved for two uh, categories of individuals. A, it is for internationally recognized athletes coming to the U.S. to perform at a specific athletic event. And they can come as an individual participant in the event or as part of a team or league. The individual or league must be internationally recognized. But the, the league doesn't have to be a professional league. They can be amateur leagues. They are fine as long as they are internationally recognized. And B are for entertainers who are coming to the U.S., to be an integral and essential part of a performance. They must be part of the entertainment group and must have been affiliated with that group for at least one year. Now, and, it, and the group must be recognized internationally as outstanding, even if the individual is not. That is not required for the individual to be recognized, but the group has to be recognized internationally. Got it. So, Skenya, P1 is for internationally recognized athletes and entertainers as a group. So, right. let's jump to TJ to talk about P2 for artists and entertainers sure. so and their the support personnel. Sure. Yep. So, Sheila, like you said, it's for artists and entertainers and their support personnel, and they need to be coming to the U.S. either individually or as a group to perform in a reciprocal ex exchange program between one or more U.S. and founder, uh, excuse me, foreign counterpart organizations. Uh, you know, unfortunately, this visa type is rarely used because the, the um, eligibility requirement is severely limited. Okay. Uh, then let's jump to um, P3, which is a petition for a non-immigrant artist or entertainer. And it's somewhat similar but slightly different. The main twist here is, again, it applies for either an individual or a group culturally unique artists and entertainers. I remember doing one over 25 years ago. I was so excited to do world-famous Kathan dancer from India. And since then, we've done reggae musicians and different people at the Musi Law Firm. But it's so exciting uh, because it's meant for culturally unique artists and entertainers, which is defined as a style of artistic expression, methodology, or medium, which is unique to a particular country, nation, society, class, ethnicity, religion, tribe, or other group of persons. 
So if any of you through the different, um, you know, Telugu Association or the America Tana or, you know, Kannada Sangha or different, you know, groups want to bring somebody to bring like Kathak dancers, Bharatanatyam dancers, musicians, tabla players, etc. We brought those also into the country. The P3 activities, believe it or not, can be commercial or non-commercial. And the petitioner is often the employer, but it could just be a sponsoring organization. So as I just said, like, you know, Tana, one of those organizations can be the sponsoring employer. And the beneficiaries who are coming is the employee who is also the entertainer. And if it is a, a, a performance group, then all the entertainers within the group must be listed as individual beneficiaries using the I-129 attachment form. And sometimes for the large musicians or large dance troops, we have literally dozens and dozens of their names attached to the I-129 petition. The, the beneficiaries do not all have to be performers. They can also be some can be teachers or coaches who are coming to the U.S. to impart knowledge on a culturally unique form of artistic expression. The companion classification for their essential support personnel is called the P3S which is the S for support, the support personnel. And the employer doesn't need to be in the field of endeavor. So as I said, an organization that just has, you know, stuff for inviting people doesn't have to be famous for dance, but can be just a sponsoring employer. Uh, and the purpose of admission is obviously limited to the specific competition, an event or a performance or a series of performances. So an event can include an entire season of performances. So for six months or a year, for example, a group of related activities can also be considered as one event. So with that, let me jump to TJ to briefly talk about the period of admission and uh, for to Kenya first to talk about the period of admission and then to TJ to talk about the consultation process. Okay, so for the, the P categories, you know, there are different um, periods that each category can be admitted for. For P1, for individual athletes, they can be admitted up to five years. But for P1, for teams and groups, and also for P2 or P3, for artists or entertainers, the period is determined by USCIS based on what they're coming to do. So if they're coming to compete, you know, uh, uh, participate in a competition or event, they will give the visa only what is necessary to participate and com uh, complete that event. But in any event, the, um, the period cannot exceed one year. So the maximum time you can get is one year. Now, extension for P1 individual athletes, they can be extended in five-year increments up to a 10-year maximum stay. For all the others, since they can only be given one year max the first time, they, uh, they can be uh, extended in one year increments. Now, all of these categories do get a 10-day grace period. They can arrive 10 days before the effective start date of the visa, and they can um, stay here for 10 days after the uh, the end of the performance. Thank you, Kenya. Okay, and let's talk briefly about the consultation process. Sure. So, so in order to get the approval, 
along with the petition, you need to submit a consultation. And this is a statement from the appropriate labor organization that has expertise in the specific field, that they have no objection to individuals' engagement in the U.S., and that must be submitted along with the petition. Um, the, the consultation should also address a couple other things. So for the P1s, it, it must address whether the individuals or groups' ability and achievements in the field of endeavor, whether the individual group is internationally recognized, and whether the services to be performed are appropriate for the requested classification. And then for, for, for P3s, it must also state and address whether the individual's skills are culturally unique, whether the events are cultural in nature, and whether the events are appropriate for the P3 classification. Great. Thank you so much, TJ. I'm looking at the time. We're almost at 30 minutes, and we tried to wrap it up in like 40 minutes or 45 on the outside. So I don't know if we can go a little bit faster. I know we have three or four very important categories to touch upon. One, of course, is the O1 even though it's a small number for those who, who, are, who can be eligible, it's extremely beneficial. The J1 exchange visitor category, which we'll touch upon, and then the religious worker R1 categories that we hope to delve into in some detail. So let's talk about the O1s because we do O1s routinely for people who are, so there's O1A and O1B. The O1A is primarily for individuals with an extraordinary ability in sciences, education, business, or athletics which does not include the arts, motion pictures, or television industry, because those are covered in the O1B, which TJ will talk about in a minute. But basically, the extraordinary ability, which we do routinely for many of our clients, and then later on, we file the EB1A extraordinary ability petition for them to try to get the green card after that, is uh, restricted to the fields of science, education, business, or athletics, and requires a level of expertise that the person is one of the very small percentage who has risen to the very top of the field of endeavor. And basically, we look at two tests for showing the extraordinary ability. Uh, receipt of a major internationally recognized award, the regulations mentioned Nobel Prize, but Booker Prize, the you know, Academy Awards, those wonderful gold statues that we see, all of those major national and international awards. And as an alternative, the individual can submit documentation in at least three categories, which include, for example, membership in prestigious organizations or associations requiring outstanding achievement from their members, published material in professional publications or trade publications about that particular individual, high salary, authorship of scholarly articles in the field, etc. So you're trying to go in a very, very high level. Next, we'll have TJ talk a little bit about the O1B, and then, oh, sorry, Kenya. Kenya, you're going to talk about O1B, and then TJ will jump into the O2 category. Great. Thank you, Kenya. You're welcome. Okay, so O1B is individuals with an extraordinary ability in the arts or extraordinary achievement in motion picture or television industry. So the extraordinary ability in the arts means distinction. Distinction means a high level of achievement in the field of the arts. They need to be recognized for skills that are substantially above the average, which means that they are described as prominent, renowned, leading, or well-known in the field of arts. Now, to qualify for an O-1 visa in the motion picture or television industry, 
a person must have demonstrated extraordinary achievement. Again, this again has to be demonstrated by showing that the person's skill is above average and the person is recognized as outstanding, notable, or leading in the motion picture or television field. And then you, you okay. do have the... Oh, mm-hmm. Sorry, Sheila. CJ, go uh, ahead. No, no. Sure, you do have mm-hmm. then the O2 individuals who are those who will accompany the O1 providing assistance that's an integral part of the O1A specific event or performance or essential to the O1B production. It should be noted, however, that the O2 classification is limited to foreign nationals who will accompany O1 principals in the fields of arts and athletics. Unfortunately, it's not available to individuals accompanying O1 individuals in the fields of science, business, or education. Okay. And the O1 petition, again, similar to what we talked about earlier, must be accompanied by the written advisory opinion, which is like a consultation from a peer group. Um, or labor organization, unless such a group or organization really doesn't exist, in which case the decision will be made based on, uh, on the evidence in the record with the USCIS. If a written opinion was provided within the last two years, an extension petition may request a waiver of the consultation requirement by providing a copy of the previously issued letter. We've done that at multi-law firm and been successful, uh, and it's generally been pretty okay to, to get it and you get waivers when there's no organization as well. Um, and it can be based on multiple offers. Uh, Kenya, I think you want to jump in because we're trying yes. to rush. Right. Okay. So the O1 classification, the petition can be filed based on a single um, uh, assignment or multiple offers of employment. So the petition can be actual employer or a qualified agent. The approval of the initial petition can be valid up to three years with extension in one-year increments for an unlimited duration. Thank you, Kenya. Okay, so next let's jump, TJ, to the J-1 exchange visitor category. Sure. So the, the J-1 category is a category for individuals approved to participate in work and study exchange-based visitor programs. The purpose of the program is essentially to provide foreign nationals with the opportunity to participate in educational and cultural programs in the U.S. and then return home and share their experiences and encourage Americans to do the same. So kind of like promote America abroad um, when they go home. Um, So the the J-1 visitor program consists of a few principal parties who, who administer the program, et cetera. I'll try to go through these really quickly. Um, the first is the Department of State, which issues the, the J-1 visas. Um, then there's the exchange visitor sponsors, the individuals that are promoting these programs of exchange between the, the U.S. and you know, the, the, the foreign individual. And then there is the responsible officers or alternate responsible officers, who are individuals who have been appointed by the Exchange Visitor Program sponsor to perform certain duties and to represent the Exchange Visitor Program sponsor. Then there are the Exchange Visitors themselves, those that are coming from abroad to the U.S. to engage in one of these study-based or work-based exchange programs. And then you have um, Department of Homeland Security and ICE, um, which, which manages the kind of like the internal system um, that, that runs this program, and it admits individuals in the United States in J-1 visitor status. Um, and then you have the Student Exchange Visitor Information System database. It's essentially the, the web-based system 
for maintaining info on students and exchange visitors. Okay, great. Thank you, TJ. I'll tell you what, we'll just touch upon the categories and then let's jump to our religious workers because that's kind of broad and can be very helpful for many people who think it doesn't only have to be religious workers, it can be people working for a church even in a non-religious capacity. But just with respect to categories for Jay, so that if you have this for your employees or workers or children or nieces, nephews, relatives, etc., obviously it's the Javon professor and research scholar. Next is the short-term scholars. You have students, you have trainees, you have interns. Many times when you go and stay in any five-star hotel, a Marriott or Sheraton's or uh, Hyatt, you'll see that the kids at the front desk are all J1 trainee programs or intern programs. You have teachers, you have au pairs to take care of the kids, you have camp counselors, you have government visitors, you have summer work travel, international visitors who come, and then of course you have physicians who are subject to the two-year home residency requirement that are often on J1 visas, and you have certain specialists. So we're just giving you a big picture again. The, 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 all of the different agencies that TJ just explained will be involved in making that happen. So next I'm going to invite Kenya to jump into religious workers uh, so that we can try and wrap this up in the next three or four minutes for religious workers for the R1 category because that's, Kenya does a lot of those. Kenya, take it away. Okay, so the R1 visa is for an individual who is coming to the U.S., temporary to work as a minister or in a religious vocation or occupation. Now, a minister must be a person who is authorized and trained to conduct religious worship and perform other duties usually performed by clergy of that religion. A religious vocation is a formal lifetime commitment through vows, investitures, ceremonies, or similar you know, indication to a religious way of life, such as the nuns in, um, you know, in, the, in the Catholic religion. Now, a religious occupation is an occupation that means, the, you know, has to have like three requirements, which is duties primarily related to a traditional religious function and must be related to and must clearly involve inculcating, which means teaching and instilling in others, or carrying out the religious creed and beliefs of the denomination. So it can be teachers in a you know, religious school, in a religious university, a theological college, you know, those will uh, qualify for religious occupation. And duties do not include positions which are primarily administrative or supportive in nature. So they have to, uh, the administration can be incidental, a, a slight incidental, but um, the primary um, uh, responsibilities, you know, have to be uh, the, the, you know, the duties of the, the occupation, like teaching. Um, now, religious study or training for religious work does not constitute a religious occupation, but a religious worker may go to school uh, while on R1 and be trained um, in, in, in religious work incidental to the study, but, you know, the R1 has to be obtained for the religious occupation. Great. Thank you, Kenya. Just because I know we're kind of close to 45 minutes, I, there's a lot more, but generally it's available for up to a maximum of five years. The person could be eligible for another five years if the person resides abroad for at least one year. And one important thing to remember is that 
you know, when you're ready to do this, a lot of organizations, for example, the Indian temples bring their priests and the different uh, religious sects are allowed to bring their priests and other people to work. And we talked about even some nuns, people working that don't, again, you have to show that it's part of the religion. Even if you're doing other work, sometimes you may qualify in certain of the religious worker categories. Um, so as you can see from this discussion with Kenya Sanders, TJ, and myself, there's lots of options that are available in the alphabet soup of immigration law uh, for you to consider before saying, well, the H-1 cap's over, let me pack up and forget about it or shut down my business. Always think creatively, always think outside the box, always ensure that you talk to the top immigration law firm in the world that can help guide you, your employees, and anybody you may need with respect to U.S. immigration law matters. On behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Kenya Sanders, TJ, and our entire Murthy Law Firm team, we want to thank you for joining us today. We hope you had a good July 4th holiday and you enjoy the rest of the summer. We'll see you next, me we, uh, next month. Uh, let, we look forward to seeing you next month in our monthly teleconference series. Take care and enjoy the month of July. Thank you, Kenya. Thank you, TJ. And have a good afternoon, everyone. Bye-bye. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services, and more at www.murthy.com.